Did you miss your deadline to renew your Medicaid coverage? You can still send your completed annual review form to Healthy Connections Medicaid. You may be assigned to another health plan, but you can ask to come back to First Choice within 60 days of renewed Medicaid eligibility. It's your family. It's your choice. First Choice is the right choice. Renew and choose us. Visit selecthealthofsc.com slash renew to learn more. Storie Libere presents... Of course now you say you're grateful, I'm a survivor, and you are grateful for what you lived through and experienced, which is somehow not replicable and also very hard to put into words because it's 10 years. It's very hard to sum up into concept 10 years of your life. So of course you feel a bit of a chosen one because you say, fuck, in the end, there's maybe three or 400 people in the whole world that can actually say this story. There is not that many of us. So without any doubt, you have a very elitist thing, very exclusive. The story of only a few hundred children around the world On the other hand, you say, okay, I get it, but fuck, man, sometimes I feel like I went to hell and back. The voice you just heard is that of Kamila Radznovic, and this is Soli. This is Roberta Lippi. I write for TV, radio, and the web. You are listening to Soli a journey into the memories of children who grew up in Osho's communes between the beginning of the 70s and the first half of the 80s. We've been saying it a lot. Many of the children who lived in the Sanyazin communes seem to have developed a special potential. One of the once children who confirmed this is Kamila Radznovic, historic face of MTV, successful TV presenter, born in 1974 in a cultural melting pot. She had an Italian Catholic mother transplanted to Argentina when she was a child and an Argentinian Jewish father of Russian origins. Camilla was a Sanyazin child. She's been one practically from the day she was born. Today, more than 10 years after the publication of her book, Lorifarei, I Do It Again, I decided to meet her, to gather her testimony and find out if she still feels the same way. I was born in a commune. I mean, my parents were already sannyasin when I was born, so... But actually, I received the mala in the mail months later. I don't remember. I think I was actually some, something like one year old. The mala, that is to say, the initiation is like a baptism of being sannyas, is a necklace. It's called mala and it's uh, typically from India. It's made from 107 or 108 beads, wooden beads. I don't remember the exact number, but in the Sanskrit numerological Kabbalah, it's very important. And then Bhagwan used to do, uh, at that time Osho was called Bhagwan, was, giving you, was to give you a name. And my name was Manand Kamla which meant blessed lotus flower, which is funny because it's actually quite similar to my real natural name, which is Camilla. So I don't know whether that is actually a coincidence or whether Osho wanted to play with me and with the name. So anyway, Kamla was the name that I was called by for the first 10 years of my life. Like the others, Camilla's family also came in touch with Osho thanks to someone who spoke with enthusiasm of their meeting with that highly sought-after master. 
My aunt, Olga, was one of the first sannyasin in Europe. She became very close to uh, Osho around the end of the 60s. At that point, she was studying psychology in Paris, so she was very interested in all the human condition, in the psychic and all that stuff. And at the time, there was an international movement, as you know, that was all about yoga, meditation, the opening up to the soul. There were those who did, uh, who did it on a psychedelic level, so let's say drugs, LSD, uh, and at the same time, there was the birth of all the movements of teachers, gurus, meditation. So, of course, I'm talking about the West. Huh? And so you went to Asia to find something different and find a teacher or a guru, as you may want to call it. And my aunt was one of the first to do it. And so she came back to Europe full of enthusiasm about this experience and this person she'd met. Because we are talking about a time when you spoke to Osho one-to-one. So my aunt met him, talked to him, asked him questions. She actually spent time with him. You know, the way you do when you go through a therapist today to a shrink. It wasn't very different. And so let's say she made my mom curious uh, by talking about this guru. And they both went to India. I had just born. I think I was about three months old. She had a whole postpartum depression thing. And it was my father whom I le- who my mother left me with. So, and then when she came back, then my father went to India and then we followed. So it was kind of like an infection, like a virus. So we, we've all been uh, infected by the virus of uh, going to India and going to meet Osho. Camilla's mother then leaves for India when the baby girl is only a few months old. And she only brings with her her three-year-old son, Martin. So this is the famous abandonment syndrome I'm speaking about because I had just uh, been born. And sure, it's not like I was on an orphanage or I was left in the middle of the street. But the mum is the mum. And this thing of leaving without my mum happened several times. Because then... When I was two, my mom gave me to my aunt and uh, we went to Argentina for a few months. And I was with my aunt and my grandmother in Argentina. Yeah, my dad, my brother and my mom were in there. So it's kind of different than your usual family. So this thing uh, with our fragmented family, with our scattered family, our family diaspora, as I call it, was always there since I was a child. In Argentina, it wasn't about the community. There were uh, both of my parents' families, uh, both my paternal and maternal grandparents, who were, of course, terrified by this drift, all dressed in red in India, following this spiritual teacher called Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. For a long time in India, for the first time I was five, I was there with my mom, but not with my dad and my brother, who had remained back in Italy. And then I went to Medina in England. They weren't there. None of them was there. Actually, I was totally alone without anybody of my family. So the first 10 years of uh, our life was very divided, very scattered. As I said, with a bit of a diaspora, all over houses and communes, different countries. And this thing of being apart, I don't think it was a real good idea. Camila spent the first 10 years of her life like a nomad, needing to find her place in the world. Children 
as we know, are easily adaptable, but they also need a routine, and constant change can certainly be destabilizing. If we think about all the testimonies gathered until now, she is, without a doubt, one of the children who lived in communes the longest. After all these months of being apart and being taken away, we are reunited in Milan. Milan was always our base. It didn't matter where we were in the world, we actually all met up again in Milan. Vivec was the name of the commune in Milan. It was in Via Moscova, which is actually a very central area in Milan. And it had been founded as Macondo in the 70s. Um, and then it became Vivec. I lived in India in the Pune ashram. I lived a bit uh, on and off in the sense that we went to Miasto very often, which is in Tuscany. Uh, I think it may be the only surviving Tuscany commune, by the way, now. And then I lived in Medina, which was called then Rajnish School, which was in England, where they made this experiment. And then I lived in Berlin. But when I lived in Berlin, it was before MTV, actually. So I was 18, just at the end of my high school. I had finished uh, for only for a few months. And I went, I wanted to experience being abroad. And as it is often happened, you, you relied on the sannyasin network you had. Because it was actually a network. They had a disco as their income generator. And uh, so I worked in the Berlin disco a few months before leaving for India to return to Pune and actually understand where I had lived as a child and all that has happened, uh, you know, since, what, since when I was born. So, so from 70s through four to 85, let's say. And at this point, it was October 95 when I started MTV. So it was like looking for my roots and finding out what had happened to me as a child? I didn't even have a time to turn my head around. I auditioned and I got it. Well, okay, boom. I was in London one week. And it was my life restarting again, chapter five, because at 19, I had already lived several lives, as you can imagine. I think that to lots of sannyasin happened these kind of things. I am 45 now. Sometimes I feel like I'm 20. Sometimes I feel like I am 150, because we lived many different chapters in our lives. All of them somehow self-conclusive. And then another one, completely different. So to me, the commune life was like a chapter, finishing with the commune and going to the, to the high school, which was Liceo Classico Beccaria in Milan. Suddenly dressed in dark clothes, normal clothes, bourgeois clothes, and not in red or orange with the mala around my neck was another thing entirely. It was like a life changing. And then returning to India and going to Berlin was a bit of a limbo. Then it happened MTV London. So business, career, money. We had a driver. I mean, you know, it was really different. So many lives, my God. Camilla is like a river in flood, but I knew this already. I want to try and retrace with her at least one part of these countless lives. She lived in Puna 1, the original ashram, the one in which followers were very close to Osho, the one in which children, as we've seen, were entrusted to the community, which is to say, sometimes to no one. I was truly young. I don't have a lot of memories. I do remember some things, though. I didn't have my mother as a point of reference in the commune. 
because they were all there. I remember this thing with the uh, fountain. Uh, no one told us anything. We just threw ourselves in the fountain. I remember this wasp that bit me and people thought it was a snake, so they all got very, very scared. They ran me to the uh, infirmary and they couldn't find my mother. They didn't know uh, if it was a thing for the hospital. Uh, so I remember episode like this, a sort of guerrilla survival, because at the end of the day, you went to the rickshaw, you went to school, you climbed over gates, you, you know, you were in India back in the 70s, and you were in a group of 10 or 15 kids that ranged from five, six years old up to maybe 10. Siddhartha, who was maybe one of the oldest, uh, yeah, was probably nine or 10. There was such a high degree of freedom, which uh, on a one hand, when I think about it now, I'm like, they were totally out of their mind. On the other hand, of course, they taught us independency, they taught us responsibility at a very, very young age. I remember once waking up in the middle of the night with a very high fever and my mom wasn't around. So I was alone, I started screaming in this room, and someone called her. Basically, I couldn't manage to get out because she had locked me inside the room. You know, we were in the ashram, she was afraid that I would have uh, sort of left the room and she wouldn't have found me again. It was very, very big, the ashram. And she said, but I just uh, went out to get the medicine, you know? But really, I had, I had walking up alone with 40 degrees fever in a panic. You have to understand, I was five, six years old. So we're talking about a very small child. She got there a little while later, by all means, all good. She, she, I'm sure that she meant good, but for me, there was a very big shock, a very big trauma. And this episode, I remember, as one of the great fear, like, where the fuck is my mother? Where the fuck is my mother? If they ask me to sum up all the testimonies gathered until now in one sentence, I don't think I could find a better one than Camilla's words. And yet, all Sanyazin children have tried to justify and make sense of their parents' choice. A choice they endured and from which they couldn't escape. They could only live it. I actually think there was a very high degree of madness, of irresponsibility. In the end, when I criticized my parents and all of those who did these kind of things and these kind of choices, I forget that they were often very, very young adults in the sense that they were 30 and we saw them as infallible parents, as flawless parents. Me now as 44 years old with two daughters of the age, let's say, of probably similar of what I was with my brother back then, I am much older than my mom was when she was doing that experience. Like she was a cool 15 years younger, a cool 10 years younger, but it's hard for me to understand the choices she made. And all right, they tell me, you need to put that in context. That was the 70s. So that was the hippie movements all around the world. So sometimes the generational gap makes it so you can't understand your parent choices. And of course, mine, but they were extreme. They have been extreme. 
Of course, now you say you're grateful, I'm a survivor, and you are grateful for what you lived through and experienced, which is somehow not replicable and also very hard to put into words because it's 10 years. It's very hard to sum up into concept 10 years of your life. So of course you feel a bit of a chosen one because you say, fuck, in the end, there's maybe three or 400 people in the whole world that can actually say this story. There is not that many of us. So without any doubt, you have a very elitist thing, very exclusive. The story of only a few hundred children around the world. On the other hand, you say, okay, I get it, but fuck, man. Sometimes I feel like I went to hell and back. So today, perhaps you feel very cool. You feel like maybe you have uh, one step more than everybody else, one experience more, but everyone else hasn't had to spend money on therapy, psychiatrics, psychologists, mending emotional and psychological traumas. They, they have never endure. By getting a lot of therapy, you learn how to deal with them. Actually, you know, sort of somehow melt those uh, traumas but they were so incredibly mad those years and so terrifying that actually you could go back to a normal life because we never really knew what. Did you miss your deadline to renew your Medicaid coverage? You can still send your completed annual review form to Healthy Connections Medicaid. You may be assigned to another health plan but you can ask to come back to First Choice within 60 days of renewed Medicaid eligibility. It's your family. It's your choice. First Choice is the right choice. Renew and choose us. Visit selecthealthofsc.com renew to learn more. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. Normality was. I look at Camilla and know I could almost stop asking questions because her awareness of what she's experienced is so deep that it's clear that as an adult she has accomplished a work on herself she began as a child, a work which still continues today. Amazing and terrifying years, she calls them. I can't ask her about everything. After all, she's already written a book on those years, the result of a great introspection. But we'll start from here, from these contrasting memories, from the amazing to the terrifying, from her best memories to her worst ones. The worst memories I have are always and forever tied to England, to Medina. Those months there were hell to me. The loneliness, the fear, the fear of not knowing where the fuck I was. When I would see my mother again, my family, my brother, my friends. There was no internet, you know, back then. We're talking about 1985, no mobiles, that was just madness. Those three, four months I spent there, I don't know. To me, they've been really, perhaps that is the one thing where I can't truly forgive who made the choice to send me there and to send me alone. The best memories instead were perhaps in India. I remember this gang that roamed Pune. 
you know, all this freedom we had, we could explore, knowing many different things, being alone all day, doing exactly what the fuck we wanted, what we liked, behaving very naughtily. We could eat French fries at the Blue Diamond, which was this incredible big hotel outside the ashram. We could, uh, there was this guy passing, which was uh, the ice cream wala, uh, which is like the ice cream man. I don't know um, how it is possible that I didn't get any incredibly deadly disease from uh, eating this uh, sort of uh, ice cream made from uh, fresh mandarins, Indian fresh mandarins, which of course, uh, Indian water. But probably now I have like the world's strongest antibodies. I have some uh, lovely memories, yes, perhaps uh, more around India to this great sense of, uh, yeah, of freedom. In an age where you're usually actually taught discipline, rules, you live in a family, you live in maybe in a small flat. But in fact, we had no rules. We were wild, running around. Actually, it was very much up to us, you know, uh, to our good sense, which of course, if you think that I was five years old, is kind of strange, but anyway. What's sure is that it's actually a miracle that nobody, nobody lost their life and nobody got really hurt. That's quite true. The magic of India and the anguish of England and Medina. Medina is the children's commune Tim Guest attended as well. Medina is the school in which Venu grew up. Medina is the last memory of Kamla's life before she returned, or rather became, once and for all, Kamila. Her parents disagreed with the heads of the movement when they decided to close down the small communes, a story we already heard from Anugata. The commune where Kamila lives in those years back from India is like its own happy world. It's in the province of Alessandria, in a wonderful villa, so when they tell them it's closing down in favor of bigger communes, also in this case, they have to face more despair. The unknown and a new family diaspora. Camila is sent to Medina alone, just like Anugata had to do with Venu. They are hard months for her, until one evening her parents decide it's time to take action, and news come. So I received a fax because, of course, back in the 80s, uh, as I said, there was no mobile. I was about 10. We were in the middle of nowhere in the Suffolk countryside uh, in England, in this mansion that was actually very, very beautiful, huge with a big, big park, but totally isolated from the outside world. It was like a cult. This is what I felt. You can't call it by any other name but a cult. And anyway, I got a fax from my mother saying, uh, we're taking you back to Italy. And Shana, who was responsible for the commune then in England, whom I've always considered a great friend. I don't know why he liked me so much, but he really helped me. He protected me in those months, which were so difficult for me. I think that he felt and he could see my uh, sadness and my fear. Anyway, the evening before I left, I was like, it was like a conspiracy, you know, like, I don't know. So Shana basically whispered in my ear, pack your stuff you're leaving tomorrow morning. Don't tell anyone. Don't talk to anyone. Just, you know, say goodnight in the most natural way possible. Go to bed, be ready. Tomorrow morning you're leaving. Maybe, I don't know, I think I slept dressed because I had understood it was a, like a situation in which I had to be ready. 
Sheila was in Medina. Sheila was uh, OSHA's secretary, the one that actually made a big mess. Of course, I was very lucky for her to be there because she had come those in those days because she uh, toured the world communes to uh, supervise or better to terrorize, I don't know. Anyway, she was selling everybody uh, stuff. She was manipulating people. I was tr truly too young to understand, but I don't know what the fuck she was doing there. But anyway, uh, she was there. Without a doubt, the need to hurry and act secretly was related to Sheila's presence. Because of this, Shana gives the child very precise instructions and instills in her a sense of urgency. And because of this, Camilla, who is perhaps too young to understand all the reasons behind that departure, but who has certainly grown up fast enough to know who she's dealing with, manages to address that strange, stressful situation and face the meeting with Osho's feared assistant. I remember I took this stuffed animal, which uh, I then brought back to Milan, and I traveled with this. And the evening before I left, and I left in a truly clock and dagger manner at dawn, and I couldn't say goodbye to anybody because it wouldn't be official, nobody knew I was going. I was heartbroken because, you know, I couldn't say goodbye to some of the friends I made there. But I, I actually totally understood it was uh, this way or no way, because Sheila had locked me into this uh, administrative office uh, the evening before and asked me a thousand questions about my parents. You know, your parents are leaving the mala, which actually means leaving the, com the commune and dropping out of being a sannyasin. Uh, oh, you know, she would rave on, this is unacceptable for us. And I had my mother fax, uh, Shana's advice, and I understood this was the showdown. That was it. I was about to live. And I understood perfectly well that Sheila could have uh, prevented me leaving if I gave the wrong answer. So of course I immediately understood I needed to act. And you know, I was a 10-year-old girl. And there I was reassuring this 40-year-old crazy woman saying, uh, you know, I was saying, no, no, Sheila, don't worry. This is incredible. I don't know what my mom and dad uh, think of doing, but don't worry. Uh, I am not going to let them leave the mala. I will persuade them. And, uh, you know, they're totally uh, out of their mind. And you know what? I am still surprised at how a woman of her age could be so naive as to believe a girl of 10. But there you go. Lucky for me, she did, she believed me. In the sense that the level of madness was so high, the level of fanatism was so high that actually fanatism for once played in my favor and I got what I wanted. I understood I needed to lean on that. It's called survival, street smarts, emotional intelligence, call it as you like it. So she let me go. And I remember she had locked me in the office. I was very, very uncomfortable with that. So when she let me go, I said, okay, that's it. You know, I said, stay dressed, pack, be ready. And it was totally ridiculous. I had like three things, but they weren't mine. I decided to take them with me. But they all belonged actually to the commune. Little Camilla returns to Italy, where her parents await. She gets on the plane alone. She gets to the airport alone. She has spent so much time without them, 
and as she goes home, she already knows her sannyasin life is about to end. She leaves with very little, because in the commune, nobody owns anything, just herself. What she brings back is basically just her own self. My God, if I remember, I totally looked like a gypsy. So much that when I arrived in Linate or Malpensa, I'm not sure where I landed. Of course, I cannot remember. But anyway, the police at the uh, customs stopped me and asked me a tons of questions. I had this Walkman, I remember. Uh, I, I had taken it from the commune. I actually stole it from the commune. And it didn't have the part on the, on the top, you know, the, the cover, the cover, the one that covered the tape. And the tape only worked if you put a toothpick in between the two little wheels that made the magnetic tape through. You, you know what I'm saying? I know it's an old kind of device. Probably new generation don't even know what I'm talking about. But I had to hold this Walkman horizontally because otherwise it wouldn't work. Uh, and I had these broken earphones uh, with a skirt in Sanyan sunset color. Of course, I was dressed up in uh, like Tibetan color, so like this yellow, maroon, orange. I remember I had a stain on my skirt and I think even a hole. I look kind of messy. I had very long hair, not very combed and properly put as a... Uh, as you would expect from a 10-year-old, because it's not like you did yourself up in the commune, you know, you don't do your hair. I was very clean, of course, because uh, they washed us like in a lager twice or maybe even three times a day with uh, this very powerful soap. It was actually like a disinfectant. It was mad because we were terrified of epidemics. They were terrified of epidemics. It was the time where AIDS and HIV were starting in Europe. So we couldn't kiss, we couldn't touch, we couldn't, there were hundreds of rules, uh, very absurd if I look back now. And in my diaries now I can still read when I wrote back to my mother saying, I kiss you, I know I couldn't or I shouldn't give you a kiss. So you can understand that this is madness. We touched each other with the surgical gloves you use today. The madness of these fanatics. So everything should be fanatic. So we were very clean, but very unkempt, very slatternly. So I realize now when the police saw this child who was like a gypsy, call her what you want, obviously they stopped me. Of course, I mean, I put myself in their position. I was alone, so where are you coming from? And what do you have there? What kind of Walkman is this? Of course they took my little Walkman, Walkman apart because it looked like a strange device. I'm not sure whether they thought it was drug or I don't know, but. They had every reason to think, where are the parents of this little girl? And of course, they were outside, you know, so uh, I'm like, well, okay, my parents are waiting for me outside. I come from uh, Osho commune. So then, of course, they asked me a lot of questions uh, and they escorted me outside. I think they didn't believe that my parents were out, out there waiting for me. And my mom had made me a surprise of coming to get me with my schoolmates, my schoolmates back from Italy. So I think the police realized it was just alternative, hippie, totally out of their mind people, but somehow harmless. You know, we were just weird, hippie, dressed in red, singing Krishna song. Anyway, they decided to live this way, strange, but not criminals. 
Camila can finally hug her family again. It's the beginning of her new life, and it's immediately clear because her mother makes a gesture that involves no words. And that gesture, for Camila, means that she will no longer be Kamla. So I remember that time, as soon as we arrived home back from the airport, my mother sat down in a chair, told me, okay, Camila, we're going to cut your hair. It's too long. It's too messy. And when she was cutting my hair, she actually cut the mala. I mean, she cut my hair, and with the excuse of cutting my hair, she actually wanted to cut this necklace. So I remember these beads bouncing everywhere around me on the floor. And before we had been so terrifying of breaking the mala, that was like when we played, that was the biggest fear we had. So we actually uh, slided under our armpit as not to break it when we were playing. And instead, this time, suddenly my mom cut this necklace. So I was fully aware to the fact that my mom had scissored through it on purpose. It wasn't by chance, so I totally understood what that meant, you know? It was the closing of a chapter of my life. I didn't even need to ask any question. It was all very clear to me. After Sheila, after the don't f- uh, flight in a car, everything was just very clear. But I was still just 10 years old, right? Camilla's mother, like Tim Guest's mother, destroys the symbol that represents her belonging to the group without any explanation. And Camilla doesn't ask questions because she knows it's time to begin a new life. She left her friends in Medina. She will never meet Shana again. The teacher who, as we saw at the beginning of this journey, had to deal with one of his students' suicide. She will no longer dress in the movement's clothes. She will have to go back to the normal world, go back to learning new codes, and try to be accepted in a new reality which is very different to the one she was used to. How will she manage? What obstacles will she have to overcome next? We'll find out with her and the memories that will continue seeping through her words. This is Roberta Lippi, and I look forward to having you back for the next episode of Soli, here on storielibere.fm. The international version of Soli has been translated by Edoardo Rialti. The international voice of Roberta Lippi is Cecilia Gragnani. Storie Libere Production by Gianandrea Cerone and Rossana De Michele. Editorial Supervisor Guido Guenci and Chiara Tagliaferri. Post and Sound Design Era Zero. Did you miss your deadline to renew your Medicaid coverage? You can still send your completed annual review form to Healthy Connections Medicaid. You may be assigned to another health plan, but you can ask to come back to First Choice within 60 days of renewed Medicaid eligibility. It's your family. It's your choice. First Choice is the right choice. Renew and choose us. Visit selecthealthofsc.com slash renew to learn more.